0: We tonight are in Genesis 46, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there, Genesis chapter 46. We're going to look at a message called Preservation and Reunion as we have now seen Joseph reveal himself to his brothers. I am Joseph. I'm alive. And one of the first things that he says to his brothers is, how is my father? And dad is going to get an update uh, as they head back with the wagons from Egypt and You know, uh, the blessings of Pharaoh, they're going to head back and share with dad that Joseph is alive and he still lives. And for the last 22 years, if you can imagine as a parent, as a father, having 22 years where you uh, had not seen your boy, you thought he was dead, you thought he was gone, and you found out that he lives. Now we find from the biblical record that uh, Jacob at this point is 130 years old, so traveling is probably not at the top of his list, but he is told that um, his son is alive, he is the viceroy of Egypt, and that he wants to really see his dad. So they're about to pack the wagons and head back, and we're going to get into a little bit of Jacob's odyssey now as he is going to cross the border of the promised land for the first time in his life he's going to leave Canaan and head to see his lost son that is actually alive let's pray father the thank you for the drama of the bible thank you that it's so true to real life and such a picture of the gospel and the hope that we have of a reunion day that's coming where our wildest dreams indeed will come true I think in In Jacob's wildest dreams, he thought, I'll see my son again. He won't be dead. He'll be alive. And you are the God that blesses us with bringing dreams that come to pass, dreams that you give. You gave Joseph a couple of dreams. They came to pass. Uh, The brothers did bow down. And now you will give him the desire of his heart as he gets to see his dad again. I know for many of us in this room tonight, that may have been a desire of our hearts that... uh, There would be a reunion, or maybe for some there's still hope of a reunion day that could come. But for us as Christians, there's hope of a future reunion day when we will see each other and know each other even as we are known. We look forward to that day, Lord, and we pray that whatever you want to say to us tonight, you would speak to us. Your servants are listening, so speak to us and give us ears to hear and a heart to respond to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, we're in Genesis 46, verse 1. So Israel set out. Now, he was told about the fact that Joseph is alive. He's told that he needs to go see his son. And so Israel, which is the new name of Jacob, remember Jacob was a conniver, and his name literally meant heel catcher. And when he was born, he grabbed onto the heel of his brother. Remember that? Kind of a picture of his whole life. But he was renamed Israel. And I told you that the name of Israel, I'm pretty convinced that the name of Israel is best defined as God prevails. Some people say it means governed by God, and that may well be. But I think it's pretty safe to say that it has a meaning like God prevails. And so Israel set out, and God was prevailing over this whole story with all that he had. And he came to Beersheba. And he offered sacrifices to God, to the God of his father, Isaac. Now remember we have the patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. Eventually from Jacob comes the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the story of the Bible that we really need to understand. And here is Jacob. He's been renamed Israel and now he's going to set out for Egypt. Egypt will be the place where Israel actually grows into an incredible nation. At this point, we're going to learn that they are only 70 to 75 people. And it's about 215 years ago that God first spoke to Abram, and Abram left Ur of the Chaldees. He left paganism and idolatry to follow the true God. It's been 215 years, and they've only grown from one man, or if you want to include Sarai, a man and a woman, to 70 to 75. I'll tell you the difference in those numbers in a second. In 215 years, in 430 years in Egypt, they will leave Egypt, get this, with 600,000 foot soldiers, plus women and children. In about double the time, they will grow to about 2 million people. And they will grow in a pagan nation in the land of Egypt. Sometimes we wonder, where's the best places we can grow? Right? Where can I flourish the best? I always like to flourish where I'm most comfortable. Amen? Like, I'm good. I'll grow right here, Lord. I, I, I like it right here. But you know what? Our greatest growth doesn't always happen behind the walls of the church. Have you noticed For a lot of us, this is kind of our Canaan. This is our little place of comfort, right? We even have our seats marked out. Any of you have a seat? I I heard a a guy and he was saying that um, he was a public school teacher and God had really given him a heart for kids and he said that he had this method and what he would do is he would say, okay, in my class I don't assign seating. What I do is I let you pick your seat and tomorrow if you come back and you want to sit somewhere else, That's fine with me. And the kids are like, oh, Mr. So-and-so is so cool. You can sit wherever you want in his class. So day one, they come and they kind of scope out their seat. On day two, they would move around. He said, after day two, they would never move again. (laughs) He said, people are such creatures of habits that these students would find the desk on day two and they would never move again. And that's pretty much how we are. You really get challenged when you come in on a Sunday morning and someone sits in your seat, don't you? It's a real test of the fruit of the Spirit. You kind of almost silently say to them, do you not know who I am? (laughs) This is my seat. Oh, no, it's not. Anyway. So, Israel set out with all that he had. He came to Beersheba. Um, Some of you are familiar with the phrase from Dan to Beersheba. And here's where this comes from. Dan is the northernmost part of Israel. And for those of you who are going to go to Israel with us, Dan is on the Syrian border. In fact, you get a chance if we kind of retrace the steps that we took at our last trip, which was 10 years ago, that there's basically a rickety fence between you and the Syrian <laughs> and uh, they'll they'll point out buildings and what's there but I'm not going to ruin the surprise for you but anyway Dan is the uppermost northern part where you head into Syria Beersheba is the last outpost before you cross the desert to Egypt and so this is where he comes he is moving south remember he's moving from Canaan which is modern Israel down south to Egypt right so he's never left the promised land to my knowledge of scripture and he comes to Beersheba and notice what he does he offers his, he offers sacrifices to God sacrifices are plural there to the God of his father Isaac now he's heading out everything that he has and he's leaving the promised land and i would imagine that as someone who's 130 and pretty set in your ways and pretty comfortable where you are that you might have some questions for God like is this really what you want me to do it's awesome that my son is alive I do desperately want to see him. But should I cross this border? Should I leave the promised land? The land that you promised to my grandpa and to my dad? He comes to a place called Beersheba. By the way, Beersheba means, if you look up in a Hebrew lexicon, it actually means well of the seven or well of the oath. And it was there at Beersheba that Abram made an oath with I think it was Abimelech. And uh, that's, that's recorded back in, um, ex, uh, excuse me, Genesis 21. You can write down verses 27 through 34. And there was a debate over a well and uh, Abram, you know, expressed his concern over the well. They made a treaty together there and it says that Abram planted a tamarisk tree, which was a symbol of fruitfulness and prosperity he memorialized God as the source of his prosperity in the land of Beersheba. So Beersheba, again, the place of the oath or the well of the seven. Seven is the number of completion or perfection in the Bible. And so off goes Jacob. He's put everything that he has, all of his earthly possessions are on these wagons or carts that the Pharaoh has sent to him to come into Egypt. Interestingly enough, It's the Pharaoh that supplies the uh, travel accommodations to get Israel into Egypt. And ultimately, it will be the Pharaoh that has to deal with the exit of Israel out of Egypt. And he will end up chasing them on chariots, remember, and then God will deal with him. So it is kind of ironic that the Pharaoh of the time brings them in. And there was a prophecy given to Grandpa, to Abram, God said to Abram, this is Genesis 15:13. know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Genesis 15:13. I am sure that Jacob knew about that prophecy. And so if he was putting two and two together, he may have been thinking, should we go into this land? Should I lead this young nation of only 70 or 75 people into this foreign land? What is in this foreign land? Paganism, a pharaoh, a very powerful nation, a polytheistic nation, a place where my family could be corrupted, where my sons may end up being corrupted or even intermarrying with these people or at least least the grandsons would. And so Beersheba becomes a significant stopping point where sacrifices are offered to God. Uh, Some scholars believe that the sacrifices here are not necessarily burnt offerings. They're more like Thank offerings. God is thanking God for Joseph still being alive. And we've all kind of paused at some of those places where maybe an altar was built or we, we memorialized a place, I believe it's even in Beersheba, where Isaac built an altar to God. And, you know, we, we kind of do some business with God. And I think part of what Jacob was probably doing was saying, Thank you, Lord. Thank you for my son being alive, but also maybe asking God for direction, like, should I do this? And it's always important when we get a piece of news or we have to make a major change in our lives that we seek the Lord. And we can't just assume that we do that. Sometimes, you know, we don't spend enough time in prayer over things and we can get ourselves in trouble. And so I think this is what Jacob is doing. He's offering sacrifices to God um, he sets out, but he, he stops here at this place of the oath or the well of the seven. And he offered sacrifices, notice plural, to the God of his father, uh, Isaac. And in response, as he offered these sacrifices, God spoke to Israel. Look at verse two. Envisions, plural, of the night. And he said, with a double call, we've seen this in the life of Samuel. We see this when Saul, who became Paul, was first called, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me right it's hard for you to kick against the goads and in one of Saul's testimonies in the book of Acts he says who are you Lord I am Jesus whom you are persecuting and then he says what would you have me to do get up and you'll be told what you should do Jacob Jacob God says to him he offers sacrifice he gives thanks he seeks the Lord and God speaks to him and this is a this is a principle for us that I think we all need to hold on to because we all have these questions about when a question is before us when we're on the verge of trying to make a big decision or maybe considering a move what do we do? how do we know God's will? how should we navigate such things? they, they seem to be awfully gray many times in the Bible well I think we can assume that Jacob was asking for direction and God did speak to him he said Jacob, Jacob he said here I am uh, this is the The response that's often seen by people that God calls to. He calls to them and they say, Here I am. Uh, Samuel was instructed by Eli. The next time he calls you, just say, Here I am. Your servant is what? Listening. Isn't that a great response? That's what we should say to God more. We should say to God more, your servant is not talking. Listening, Now God likes to hear us pray, which is amazing to me. (laughs) But I think he also wants us to listen. Sometimes he'll speak to your heart. Sometimes he'll prompt you. Sometimes a scripture will leap off the page. Sometimes somebody will send you an email at the proper time. There's a whole host of ways that God does speak to us. But God is going to speak to Jacob. And he's going to give him an assurance here. Um, that I think is important for us to see. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Look at verse 3. And he says, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. So God gives him a direct answer. I think we can infer from verse 3 that Jacob was afraid, that Jacob was asking questions and God answered the question on his heart. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. Would you turn in your Bible to Isaiah 43? I want to show you a beautiful section that should encourage us all God has got a detail he knows our name he knows he's named all the stars even in the Milky Way galaxy alone there's something between like 200 to 400 billion stars just in our galaxy alone did you hear that? 200 to 400 billion stars just in our galaxy alone and God calls them all by name and he knows your name and he knows my name And he says in Isaiah 43, a little later after he talks about the stars in Isaiah 40, he says, 43-1, But now, thus says the Lord your Creator, O Jacob. Isaiah 43-1, I'm the one that started this whole thing with the nation. This is much later, way after Jacob's life has ended. He says, thus says the Lord your Creator, O Jacob. Isaiah 43-1, And he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Some of you need to mark that. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. You not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. Don't be afraid. I do want you to go to this place. The bigger uh, lesson here, if you turn back to Genesis 46, is that God was in control. God was the one putting all these things together. It wasn't you that sent me here. Joseph said to his brothers, it was God. It was God four times, remember? It was God. It was God. God is sovereign. God is providential. James Montgomery Boyce, who's gone home to be with the Lord, says, God is always more eager to answer than we are to ask. He is always more eager to guide than we are to follow. One more time. God is always more eager to answer than we are to ask and more eager to guide than we are to follow. And he said, don't be afraid. Go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. Now, if you like to bullet point um, your notes here, this is what God has been Uh, promising all along he's going to give four reasons why Jacob doesn't need to be afraid number one if I'm in verse 3 is I will make you a great nation there I will do what I promised to Abram that your descendants will be as the stars of the sky or the sand of the seashore God is always true to his promises don't be afraid to go because I'm going to make a great nation do you remember when Peter was up on the rooftop and he was in Joppa and uh he saw that sheet come down and then the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, don't be afraid to go with those men. And Peter actually entered into a Gentile house. It was the house of Cornelius. And he said, you know that me being a Jew, this is not kosher, baby. (laughs) Right? This is not cool for me to enter a Gentile dwelling. But God has taught me not to despise or look down on on people. And uh, he was assured by God, you go ahead and go. Reason number two is found in verse four, Genesis forty-six, four. I will go down with you to Egypt. You can go because I'm going to make you a great nation there, the nation of Israel, indeed. And you can go because I'm going with you. Moses said in Exodus thirty-three, verse fifteen, if your presence doesn't go with us, then don't lead us up from here, Lord. You know, I've come to a point in my Christian life where this is this is a prayer, whether I always state it or not. This is my heart. Lord, if you're not going to be there or you're not leading, then please keep me from doing anything dumb. Keep me from doing anything stupid. Keep me from getting ahead of you. Keep me from lagging behind you. If you don't go, Moses says, I don't want to go. It's in that same chapter that Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. The third reason that he could trust in the Lord's promises here and he could go to Egypt Look at verse 4. He says, I will also surely bring you up again. I will surely bring you up again. Bring you up where? I think to the promised land. And this was not just a prophecy about the people. Israel would come to the land of Canaan through the deliverance of Moses, but who was the one that ultimately led them into the promised land? Joshua. Moses brought them to the border of the promised land, but it was Joshua who's the Hebrew form of the Greek name, Jesus, who brings them into the promised land, right? And even that was quite a battle. But this prophecy also applied directly to Jacob because Jacob's bones would be carried back to the promised land. You could write down uh, Genesis 50 verses 13 and 14 where they bury uh, Jacob in the family plot. And by the way, when Jacob leaves Canaan to go to Egypt and the family will be there for some 400 plus years the only land they own in Canaan in Israel is the burial plot of their family they don't own another inch of land isn't that amazing they have the promises of God and the promises of God are yes and amen right but they don't really own any land except for a little cemetery and that's what's going on the fourth reason and this has had to be incredible for uh, Jacob to hear at Beersheba. The Lord adds, Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. You know, he thought Joseph was dead. And for him to hear that when you leave this planet, the son that you thought you lost is going to close your eyes in death. Can you imagine what that meant to his heart? Now look, I know we have a, a room of people who are, mixed in age here. I don't know how much of you spend time thinking about a deathbed experience and how you might depart this planet. But you know what? To imagine that this son that he thought he had lost would close his eyes in death was amazing. And by the way, when Jacob finally arrives and has this great reunion with Joseph, do you know that Jacob ends up living 17 more years He gets to spend 17 years with the son that he thought he lost. And just by the way, this is cool, Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery. And I was thinking, you know, the Lord says, I will restore to you the years that the locust is eaten. And I think it's a beautiful thing just to contemplate. You know, Jacob had spent a lot of time saying, my gray hairs are going to go down to Sheol and sorrow." It seems like every time you hear a record of Jacob speaking after Joseph was sold into slavery but he thought he was dead he's always talking about death i'm going down to the grave with my gray hairs and all anybody speak like this anybody in your family talk that way you know i'm going down some of us i've earned every one of these gray hairs baby <laughs> going down to sheol with them well don't take any of us with you right So Jacob arose from Beersheba, verse 5, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. I'm wondering, you know, how Jacob's heart must have leapt when he thought, you know what? I'm going to see this boy again and I'm going to see his face before I exit this planet. Um, Just a beautiful promise. And so... Jacob was carried along by the products of Egypt and off he goes heading to the promised land. It seems that verse 5, verse 5 confirms that Jacob was looking for a direct answer from God. Jacob arose from Beersheba and he took off. He received it and arose from Beersheba to go down to Egypt. This was a major change, but God was leading and going with him. Again, James Montgomery Boyce providing some helpful insight. He says, quote, You may be on the verge of a major change and you may be uncertain about it, even fearful. If so, do not take a step until you seek God's face. Ask him to show you the direction you should go. If God is silent, remain where you are. If he speaks, go forth boldly and fear nothing. He will be with you, not only in Egypt, but to the uttermost parts of the earth. Close quote. I think when we're wrestling with decision making, this is what we do. We ask God, and if God is silent, then don't move. Don't take God's silence for an answer. <laughs> right? Which is a mistake that we make. Maybe the Lord, maybe that silence means this. Or maybe it just means God's saying, just wait. It's not the right time. I don't want you to move yet. Or maybe it's not the right direction. But God confirmed To Jacob, And they took their livestock, verse 6, their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan. They came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. Now there are going to be a list of 70 people here. You might want to just make a note that in Acts 7, 14 and 15, when Stephen is preaching to the religious leadership in the Book of Acts, he says 75 persons in all. Uh, that's what the Septuagint records. Um, we're going to see that it's 70 here, and I'll I'll give you a little bit more about that. Um, you know, you can get this in a Bible difficulties book, but Stephen, being a Hellenist Jew, would naturally have used the Septuagint figure. Um, he was Hellenistic, which means he had a Greek background and uh, we'll come to that in a second but let's just read down the list and um, I'm going to do my best with these names so here we go some of you when you come to genealogy lists I know you skip over them and, and I totally understand uh-huh. but, but these names are here for a reason and they remind us that God is a God who cares about people the sons of Reuben were Hanak, Palu, Hezron and Carmi the sons of Simeon Jamul, Jamin Ohad, Yaqin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. Now, I've done a little math on this, but if you're if you're that meticulous, you can write numbers next to the names and figure out the math. The sons of Levi, verse 11, were Gershon, Kohath, and Ferari. I mean, Merari, sorry. <laughs> the sons of Judah were Ur and Onan, and Shelah, and Perez, and Zirah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan, we remember that story. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar were Tola, Puva, Lob. He uh, perfected the Lob serve in tennis, just so you know. Sorry, Shimron. The sons of Zebulun were Sered, Elan, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, who she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram with his daughter, Dinah. All his sons and his daughters numbered 33. So there's the big number there. You add Dinah in, according to my math, you get 33 out of that list. The sons of Gad were Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Ezbon, Eri, Eridi, and Areli. The sons of Asher were Imnah and Ishba, Ishvi, Bariah, and their sister, Sarah. The sons of Bariah were Heber and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah. She bore to Jacob. These 16 persons. So there's the big number again. 33, 16. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, that was his true love, were Joseph and Benjamin. And we can see how important both of them were to Jacob. Verse 20, Now to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim. Uh, these names mean uh, God has allowed me to forget and to be fruitful even though God you know truly Jacob still had uh, Joseph still had on his heart to be with his father again and to have a reunion but these are the ones that were born to the wife that he had received from the Pharaoh Asenath the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On bore to him the sons of Benjamin were Bela and Beker Eshbel Gera Naaman Ahi, and Rosh, Mupim, and Hupum, and Ard. (laughs) I was going to make a Muppet joke there, but I thought it would be in poor taste. The sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, that was the sister, um, were 14 persons in all. Uh, The sons of Dan were Husham. The sons of Naphtali were Jaziel, uh, I don't know where, if this is where Gun comes from, but <laughs> Guni, Jezer, Shillem. These are the sons of Bilha, whom Laban gave to his daughter Rachel, and she bore these to Jacob. There were seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two all the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were seventy. So there's the, the number. Now he sent to he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him, before him to Goshen. He was kind of like the scout. I think it's beautiful that Judah rode as the scout, pointing the way. Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, and Judah was a changed man. And they came into the land of Goshen, which was a very rich land. Now I'm just going to read a note here. Uh, about the 70 to 75. Um, in the the verse, and let me go back to see where I put my footnote here, where it says in verse 27, uh, to Joseph, there were born to him in Egypt were two. The Septuagint has nine. So that's how you get from the 66 to the 75. From my notes, nine persons in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, includes nine descendants of Joseph rather than just two thus getting from 66 to 75. These could have been younger sons of Joseph, but probably were the sons of Manasseh and Ephraim, that is, Joseph's grandsons, who would not have been born at the time of Jacob's migration to Egypt, but would have been by the time of Jacob's death 17 years later. And if you want to get into the details of this a little bit more, I would recommend... The, uh, it's a book called Bible Difficulties and you can look at the math and see how that all gets worked out. But notice, uh, Judah rides as scouts. He guides the way to Goshen and Joseph prepared his chariot. So now, remember the family, has, has have, they're now moving to Egypt and Joseph's getting ready for this great reunion day. Man, he's had a... He's got a lot of emotion, right, to deal with. The brother's coming back and forth, and now dad's on his way. And he prepared his chariot. The idea of preparation here is, you know, an official chariot, probably with servants and everything. Remember, he said, go tell dad how God has elevated me to this great position in Egypt. Tell him how God is blessed. And they tried to describe it, and they showed some of the fruits of the land. But now... Joseph's getting ready for this big moment. He hasn't seen his father in 22 years. And oftentimes when he interacts with the brothers, he he would say things like this while hiding his identity. Before he revealed himself, he would say, How is your aged father? Is your aged father still alive? He would ask about the father and about the younger brother. Why did he ask? Because even though God had given him children in Egypt and God had made him forget and made him fruitful, he didn't forget. And it just reminds me how important a father-son relationship is and how important a father-daughter relationship is. You know, in our society, it kind of gets pushed to the side or there's a mockery today of the family and the role of the father in the family. But for Joseph, no matter the, the great things that God had done for him and the place he had elevated to, I mean, he could say, M- my father, he's just an old shepherd. He's nothing. I'm the viceroy of Egypt. I mean, we, we've had some children perhaps in, in our modern age, they grow up and they kind of almost despise their parents because their parents aren't quite at the level of sophistication they are. Oh, old Jacob's just, you know, he's just this old... Uh, Shepherd back in that land. Look at what I am today. And there's a dishonoring of parents. That should never be. And it wasn't true of Joseph. Joseph longed to be with his father again, he longed to be with his dad. Look, even if you get mixed signals from your teenagers and young adults, keep plowing through because they need you. They need your influence, they need your example. They need you to be honest even when you fail. They need your presence in their lives. Joseph needed his father. That's why he asked about him because he cared. I think he imagined this reunion day as much as his father did. And you know, we've had stories uh pretty heartwarming stories about sometimes people find a lost parent and you know, you'll watch a TV show where you know they're reconciled or they're brought back together. Have you ever seen those ones where they'll uh, bring a military person off the battlefield and surprise the family? Man, it's just a heartwarming, overwhelming emotional experience. And I know some of you are here and you don't have a chance for that again or there's been a really bad experience with a parent. And uh, all I can say is in those cases, and I've lived that personally, um, a father that I didn't see for 30-something years, and then found out he died on the internet on one of those ancestry websites. No chance for reconciliation. Have no idea if he's in heaven or hell. Don't know. No chance this side of heaven to know that. But I learned some things as a Christian. One is I began to watch godly men that I did respect in the church to try to model my own family after, not to repeat the mistakes of my father. And then I learned in the Bible that God is the father of the fatherless and the defender of widows. And even if I've been let down or disappointed, I have a father that's always faithful. Amen. And so Joseph prepared you know, you can imagine, man, he probably cleaned up everything, the best it's been. You know how you get ready for that big moment, you clean up the car. Some of some of you ladies remember when he used to clean up the car. He pick up the French fries out of the car vacuum it, clean off the seat where you're going to sit, open the door for you. I know those are long behind you now for a lot of you, but anyway. The language suggests that Joseph arrived in style in an official chariot with uh, double exhaust, I think, probably, don't you think? (laughs) A Hemi in it power, grandeur, surrounded by servants. 22 years! <laughs> Can you imagine the anticipation? What a moment. What a reunion. Just let it sink in for a second. Just just put yourself in Joseph's sandals for a second. Dad's alive. I'm going to see him again. And Jacob has to be thinking, he's alive. I'm going to see him again. There's no way to fully prepare for such a moment, but he prepared his chariot he went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel, and as soon as he appeared before him, now you could imagine he might trying to play it cool a little bit. Take a look. See my chariot, <laughs> right? But look at this. He appeared before him or presented himself and he fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a long time. I think maybe he cried twenty two years worth of tears. You know, sometimes we, as men, and maybe even as women, we're afraid to show our emotion. We don't like to be vulnerable. Some of us have been burned, so we hold back vulnerability. We don't, we don't think it's cool to cry. Um, I was having lunch with a young man. I, I had the privilege of leading him to the Lord many years ago. And his story was, we moved, my wife and I moved into a condo in Orange County, and uh, we just so happened to be next door. Uh, Shane was just a tiny little boy at the time and he must have been two. And there was a young man next door and he was about probably, he must have been 10 or 11 at the time. And I'll just put it this way and I don't think he'll mind me saying this. He was in a very dysfunctional home, especially his father. His father was a Vietnam vet. He struggled with alcoholism. He was a chain smoker. So the boy began to find refuge at our condo and we kind of hit it off and we were playing we'd play baseball and wiffle ball together and I started trying to teach him how to he wanted to be play little league and I started investing in his life and one night we were sitting in my little yard in this condo looking up at the stars and I began to share the gospel with him and his friend and both of them opened their hearts to the Lord it was a cool thing and so now he's in his I think in his mid-30s he's got his own family and And he's very plugged into church and he's very much encouraging other men to walk with Christ, which does my heart a lot of good. And we had lunch the other day and he said, he goes, Michael, he goes, this is really strange, but he says, I've become very emotional. He said, I don't know what it is, but lately I start thinking about my family or thinking about God's goodness and I just start to cry. (laughs) And I said, brother, I know what you mean. I don't know what's happened to me either. God's done something in my heart. Now, I'm not at the level of Paul Hicks yet, I must admit. <laughs> see? He's, he's already crying. But I want you to see a man, a man who could have had every reason to be bitter, a man who could have had every reason to have stuffed down every emotion and tried to play it cool. You know, he did do that with his brothers. Remember, he had to excuse himself out of the room several times and find somewhere to cry. But now, he didn't care. And he fell on his dad's neck. And I don't know what all the emotions must have been like, but I'll tell you what. I almost picture it as maybe a moment like when we end up in heaven and we see somebody that we've missed for a long time. I wonder how long we'll hold each other. I wonder how many, if there are happy tears in heaven, how many tears we will weep. And I wonder if we, and I think we will, get a chance to hug Jesus, what that will be like. I'll tell you what, I won't want to let go. Well, a beautiful reunion is here. I'm sure everybody had to be in awe of God's goodness. And then Israel said something to Joseph that I think we can all understand. He said, "Now, verse 30, let me die." He says, "Since I've seen your face that you are still alive." I don't think I don't think Jacob's saying, "Okay, kill me, God." I think Jacob is kind of doing an Old Testament Simeon like in Luke 2 when Simeon uh, spent time in the temple and he had been promised by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And when he held the baby, Jesus, he said, Now your servant can depart in shalom. Peace. For my eyes have seen thy salvation. Right? And then he begins to give a prophecy in Luke chapter 2. I think that's what Israel says. Now I can die. I've told the story before, but I think it's illustrative. Some years ago, my uh, My mom was not, um, she'd grown up in a Roman Catholic church, but um, gotten away from it like I had, and I wasn't quite sure where she was with the Lord. So I'd become a pastor, and my mom was coming to church on occasion, but she wasn't really routinely coming to church. So one day, I had been witnessing to her, and I pulled into our driveway, and I locked the door, (laughs) and she goes, what's up, Michael? And I said, Mom, I just want to make sure that you know the Lord. So I shared the gospel and my mom assured me, oh yes, Michael, I know Jesus and everything's fine. So anyway, some years ago, uh, this is many years ago now, it was an Easter Sunday morning. I had preached a message on the resurrection and I had given an altar call and I was just at the pulpit praying and I had my eyes closed and I looked down and there were several people that had come down and my mom was standing at the foot of the pulpit, weeping her eyes out. And she'd given her life to Jesus Christ on that Easter Sunday. And I said from the pulpit right after that, You can just take me to heaven now. I think that's what Joseph was saying, or uh, Jacob was saying. You can just take me now because God has fulfilled my dreams. The things that I never thought would come to pass, the years that I thought He was gone, and everything, you know, had been wrong in my life, restored. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, <clears throat> I will go up to tell Pharaoh after this long embrace. I will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, 32, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. Maybe a way of saying, you know, they're not going to be completely dependent on us, they've brought resources. And it shall come about when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? that you shall say your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even till now both we and our fathers that you may live in the land of Goshen I think Joseph was being kind of diplomatic here and saying this will keep you separate because they don't like shepherds as we will see that you may live in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians now you remember when the brothers got there and Joseph had not revealed himself they wouldn't eat with the Hebrews remember remember Maybe it had something to do with their religious viewpoint. But they especially looked down on shepherds. And they loathed them. But the good news here is that God would even use that because it would keep Israel distinct from the Egyptians. So it would make the Egyptians not want to really be with them or intermingle with them. They thought it it was going to defile them and it allowed Israel to retain and even hone their national heritage and identity. So it was part of God's plan all along. Even the shepherd part was part of what God used to keep their identity pure, to keep the Hebrew lines pure so that Israel could grow to this nation of some two million people who finally exited uh, Egypt in the Exodus. God indeed restored the years that the locusts had had eaten. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah 25. We're going to finish there. And I do want to remind you that the big picture of this is about us. I've been saying that as we go through um, Genesis, Isaiah 25, our last scripture of the night. And here's why. Because remember, what, what did God do? He did all of this to preserve life. We see that over and over again. God this, did this to preserve life, to preserve life. Why? Because the line, why did God care so much about Israel? He, he loved them, certainly. He had chosen them. But from Israel would come who? The Messiah. And God was concerned about preserving the line because eventually from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and from this line that would go then through David and even from the line of the tribe of Judah would come this one who would be our ultimate rescue, our ultimate exodus, our ultimate deliverer. And God says in Isaiah 25, look at verse uh, 7. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all people's. Even the veil which is stretched over all nations, Isaiah twenty five eight, he will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, whom we have waited for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Father, we are grateful for your word tonight. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you for the shadow that Joseph cast of the Messiah and a great reunion day that's coming, the preserver of life that will lead us to a reunion day when we will all be together, we will see your face, you will wipe away tears from all faces. Thank you so much for what you've supplied for us. You are the giver of life. Jesus, you said that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it to the full. You are the preserver of life. You are our salvation, our rescue, our hope. And I pray that for each precious soul that you've drawn to this place tonight, for anyone who doesn't know you tonight, that they would reach out and say, Jesus, save me. If it's you tonight, if you maybe you're backslidden, maybe you're a prodigal, maybe you have gotten away from your walk with Jesus, maybe you've never met him before, tonight can be your night. Something simple yet very profound needs to take place. You need to trust him and him alone for your salvation, not your good works, not your performance but his finished work on the cross and his resurrection. It's something like this. If you want to pray it, and I would encourage you to pray it right now because you don't even know if you have tomorrow. Pray it right now. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Thank you that you died on that cross for me. Shed your blood. Took my punishment and my shame. And rose from the dead to defeat my mortal enemy death itself thank you that I have hope in you I repent of my sin I turn away from it and I turn to you through your son Jesus Christ be my Lord and be my Savior forgive me of all my mistakes all my sins all my trespasses all the things I should have done and failed to do all the times I thought wrongly I did wrongly I spoke wrongly cleanse me Lord, thank you that you are faithful to cleanse us from all sin, to present us before the Father faultless with exceeding joy. We just want to say we love you tonight. And I pray that what every person in this room may need tonight, a touch from you, an encouragement, whatever you want them to think about, scriptures that you want them to consider and ponder, whatever they need to meditate on that was from you tonight, let them remember that Whatever is not profitable, let them quickly forget it. But we want to just say we love you and we thank you for your word and your faithfulness to your church, to your bride. Thank you for coming to save us. Let us live for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.